66 years ago this month, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation opened and created a sensation that's never been duplicated. The star of that landmark film made her first movie in 1912. She has continued on an unprecedented career. She was honored by this Academy in 1971, and she returns tonight to announce the best picture. This glowing lady is proof that not only is film forever, but so is the enduring beauty and artistry of Miss Lillian Gish. Hello there, cinephiles and know-it-alls, and welcome to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the only podcast that rights the wrong, celebrates the slighted, and rips Oscars from undeserving hands before bestowing them at long last upon the worthier recipients. My name is Lee Charles. And I am Spro. Happy to be here talking to you, Lee, about great films as always. And it's nice to talk to you as well, always. Thank you. Such a small two words for so much, but thank you. The birth of a nation marked the birth of the power of film. It played to three times the population of America. In the years since, we have witnessed and participated in film's continued vitality as represented by the five films nominated as the best of this year. And the winner is, this is the time I'm right. In today's episode, we're planning on hewing along the same lines of our comfort zone and attack another Best Picture winner. We're not going to always be doing Best Pictures, but this week is another Best Picture, and it is the Best Picture of 1980. Ordinary People. Ordinary People, directed by Robert Redford and starring Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, Timothy Hutton, Judd Hirsch, and the always adorable Elizabeth McGovern. She reminds me of Catherine Ross from uh, The Graduate and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. She's got that like cute okay. face with the freckles. Adorable. So this one's going to be tough for me because this is this is probably the first episode where instead of angrily ripping the Oscar away from the winner, I feel like I need to take a different approach. Like as if we were all gathered together at a bar, Robert Redford was sitting at a high top by himself and left his drink and his Oscar unattended, just kind of sneak up and grab it and be like, all right, let's go, let's go, let's go. You know, hopefully he'd be like, what did I do with my Oscar? It's funny because when you first like approached the idea of this episode, I, it seemed immediately clear to me. And I feel like that's how many people look at it. Like when they realized that Ordinary People won this year when it was a pretty good year for movies. But then you watch Ordinary People and then jumped onto your ship because I was like, you know what? He has a point. There's not much wrong with this movie. Yeah, it's a good flick. But we're taking um, it away anyway. That's what this show is about. At the beginning of these shows, I like to do a couple of facts about the Academy Awards. We went over how movies are nominated, how the animated award came to be. But actually, ever since I found this out as I was researching the show, I have told everybody that I pretty much have come in contact with this interesting bit of trivia. And that's the fact that the Academy Awards were postponed for one day this year when a historical event happened on March 30th, 1981, which was a Sunday. President Ronald Reagan, his press secretary, James Brady, Washington police officer Thomas Delhanty, and Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy were struck by gunfire 
from would-be assassin John Hinckley Jr. outside of a hotel. What I did not know, I knew that Reagan, there was an attempt at his assassination. I've seen the video of all of them diving on him, you know, and thrusting him into the car as they do. But I didn't realize that it was serious. Like he was close to death upon arrival at the hospital. Like I thought it just kind of grazed him. But Reagan was stabilized in the emergency room and underwent emergency exploratory surgery, was recovered and released on the hospital on April 11th. So about, you know, almost two weeks later, but he became the first U.S. president to survive an assassination attempt. So the weird thing was, or not the weird thing, but like kind of the amazing thing is, is you think about the pomp and circumstance that surrounds the Academy Awards. I think it's one of the richest events. Like if you think about how much money is in that room on that given night, all dressed in tuxedos, all dressed in dresses, all renting diamonds, you know, that are worth multi, multi millions of dollars. All these people are getting ready to go to the Oscars, perhaps even getting into their limos. And suddenly they get a phone call that says, not tonight. Events being canceled. Do everything you did this morning tomorrow. Don't eat your breakfast, you know, so you could fit into that size zero dress. Like everything that they had to do that morning was postponed one day when they found out that Reagan was going to be okay. And a little bit of like cross section, and I'm sure you know this bit of trivia, but why did John Hinckley Jr. try to assassinate Ronald Reagan? He had seen Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver four years earlier and gotten sort of a big boy crush on little girl Jody. I don't know that she was super impressed. She also sort of not really interested in men. But I just, I feel horrible for Jodie Foster that she could be this public figure and somebody would do something so malicious in her name. Like, that's just crazy to me. I've watched my fair share of celebrity interviews and I've, I've combed through Jodie Foster's interviews. She carried herself very well. She managed to go from sort of like Kurt Russell. She managed to move from being a youthful star to a young adult star to an adult star. I mean, still relevant, revered in the industry, just head screwed on tight. So I doubt she gives it much thought anymore. Maybe I'm wrong. If Scorsese had won for like best director, if he would have brought it up the next night. When I think of Scorsese, I don't don't think of like a politically minded man. He is a machine that eats celluloid and shits out movies. (laughs) That's what I think of him as. I mean, the man is completely single-minded. That's why he's had, I don't know, I don't want to tell tales out of school. I think he's on his fourth or fifth marriage. Clearly, he puts work always ahead of every of his wives. All right. So that was my fun fact of the year that on the Academy Awards of 1981 were postponed one day due to the potential assassination of President Ronald Reagan. To get into the show, we usually start with just kind of give you a brief outlook of the popular films of the year that weren't nominated. This was the year that... To me, the best Star Wars movie came out, The Empire Strikes Back, the Dolly Parton film, 9 to 5. Oh, yeah. Dabney Coleman, Lily Tomlin. Private Benjamin with Goldie Hawn had some nominations to it. The Blue Lagoon, which (laughs) Brooke Shields. And the Yep. The Blues Brothers, Caddyshack, great comedies. The Changeling with George C. Scott, The Fog, uh, which was a John Carpenter, and then The Shining came out this year. The Shining, doing some research on the non-nominated is 
I was surprised at how not well received The Shining was at the time. And I know it's got mixed reviews kind of now. I know Stephen King came out against it at the time, but really kind of respected now as a horror film, I would say. Oh, absolutely. I bet if you look back through all of Kubrick's movies, that would be one of the rare ones that received no love at all from the Academy. I mean, apart from maybe The Killing or his early, early films. I'm betting from Paz of Glory onward. And I would have guessed that it was up for something. I, that was a surprise to see it listed in here as a non-nominated. So Golden Globes, there's a bunch of movies here that I'm not particularly privy to. So let me know if you know of anything. Melvin and Howard That's was, uh, uh, Mary Steenburgen. She won uh, Best Supporting Actress for that movie. But I didn't see it, so I'm familiar. I know the screenplay got a lot of accolades. The Ninth Configuration? I'd never even heard of it. (laughs) The Idol Maker? Nope. Fame? I know you heard of Fame. Oh, yeah. Uh, Not my favorite musical. The Stuntman? Yeah, familiar. All right. And then Airplane was final. Final uh, and I actually, I just watched Airplane for the first time this year. What? Yeah, no joke. I probably have seen like gags and everything from it, but this year was the first time that I sat down beginning to end and watched it. And it's funny when you look back now, you don't realize, you know, after the loaded weapons and the hot shots and the naked guns, you don't realize that that wasn't a thing back in 1980 when Airplane was coming out. And that was just kind of all those gags one right after another at that time must have been so surprisingly humorous if anybody went to see it in the theater. It was a send-up, too, to the 70s disaster films, particularly Airport, Airport 77. Blazing Saddles sort of did the same thing to the Western genre, but 10 years earlier. Mel Brooks and the Zucker Brothers are pretty similar. BAFTA awarded Being There and Kagamusha. I didn't know either of those. Kagemusha. That's one of Kurosawa's feudal Japan samurai epics. My brother's huge into these movies. That's one that he claims is underappreciated. Did you ever see Being There with Peter Sellers and Shirley MacLaine? That's worth one viewing. That's um, <laughs> that's an that's an that's an odd one. But that was the movie that Sellers really, 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 really wanted to do. And if you ever get the chance to watch the life and death of Peter Sellers, where Jeffrey Rush plays Peter Sellers. It's a pretty great look at Seller's life. But that was like his swan song. If I remember correctly, he died pretty soon after being there. Maybe within the next couple of years, he passed away. Gotcha. And the only thing else that I took from like the festival circuit was all that jazz. Pretty nice movie. This is the first time that looking into all the other award shows, I realized that the Producers Guild Awards, they weren't invented until 1990. The MTV Movie Awards was in 1992. The SAG Screen Actors Guild Awards started in 1995. So you can kind of see like the evolution of Hollywood and they're, ooh, we need more award shows and we need more pats on our back. Start growing in the 90s. I'd be interested to know the New York critics and the LA critics, if, if they if those associations were getting together. i got to assume that they were. And then the Writers Guild, which only awards for scripts as they should. The only thing that was in the top five of Best Pictures this year was Elephant Man for its script. The Directors Guild Awards awarded it to Robert Redford for the film that we are talking about today, Ordinary People. At the Academy Awards, going into the awards, The Elephant Man and Raging Bull each was nominated for eight awards. Coal Miner's Daughter received seven and Ordinary People and Tess received six. Since we're boiling down to a two-movie race here, let's visit the others just real quick, starting with Tess. 
help me with the pronunciation. Tess of the Dubervilles? Tess of the Dubervilles. Dubervilles. All right. So the movie Tess is Roman Polanski's take on Tess of the Dubervilles. The plot is an impressionable young Tess is sent by her alcoholic father to visit her rich relatives and apply for a job. She's taken in and immediately seduced by her cousin, Alec, who leaves her pregnant. She keeps it to herself, the pregnancy, that is, and after the child dies, begins a relationship with a respectable farmer named Angel. They marry, but when Angel learns of her speckled past, he's not sure he can live with it. And okay, so Roman Polanski's known for, and really, I'm going to say Rosemary's Baby, which I own. I really like the author of the book, Ira Levin, and he authored another book called Sliver, which then became a movie with William Baldwin and Sharon Stone, which helps me grow into a man. And Roman Polanski also did Chinatown, which is now revered and is probably the best screenplay written of all time. After Chinatown, look, I for one cannot separate artists from crimes. There's an art installation here in downtown Cleveland of Little Beetle People by sculptor Tom Otterness. And I love these little sculptures. They were involved in an activity I was doing at the time called geocaching. And that's how I discovered them outside of the public library. And I wrote the author. I wrote Tom Otterness. I talked to him and I was like, I would like to purchase a little beetle person to put on the edge of my desk. And then I did research on him and realized that he had also bought a dog to shoot it in the head and film it as part of a quote unquote art piece. And from then on, like, I, I can't like this guy's art anymore. Like, that's just not who I am. So before I talk about why I don't like even approaching the subject of tests is because four years in March of 1977, Roman Polanski drove a blonde 13-year-old girl to his friend's home under the guise of a photo shoot to make her famous, gave her champagne and a piece of quaalude, and after learning that she was not on birth control, anally raped a 13-year-old girl. This is according to court records. This is according to what Roman Polanski pleaded guilty to. And you can look it up yourself if you want to, but there's this whole give and take with the judge who was making a deal. And when Roman found out that he was not going to get the probation he thought he was going to get, that is what led to Roman Polanski fleeing the country and living in exile to not pay for the crimes that he pleaded guilty to. So anytime that Roman Polanski is brought up, I want to know that this guy pleaded guilty to rape of a 13-year-old girl and is still working in the business, along with other celebrities that like Whoopi Goldberg on The View was defending Roman Polanski and saying, well, it wasn't rape, rape. And really, I don't know of... <laughs> Another way to spin it where that isn't rape, rape. Straightforward as I could say it, fuck Tess, <laughs> fuck Polanski, and fuck everybody that works with him. I don't see how morally any of it is okay. And we will revisit him later in a future episode with our friend when we do a quickie that talks about him winning for the pianist. <laughs> what I know about Tess, because I read the screenplay, so I didn't watch Polanski's work. His, uh, Tess is about a three-hour slow burn about a girl named Tess played by a blonde 18-year-old Kinski who does a fabulous job. This is two years after Polanski goes on the lam for raping a 13-year-old girl who was also blonde. Kinski and Polanski met when Kinski was 15 and people say like, ooh, you must separate the art from the artist. And, you know, I'm not hanging a Hitler original in my dining room. I'm not putting a Hitler on my wall and I'm not putting a Polanski rape scene on my screen. And that's just my feelings on Tess. I'm going to throw it over to you, Lee Charles, and see what you think. <laughs> 
Well, you've sort of put me in a damned if I do, damned if I don't spot here. Because I watched Tess, which I'd never seen, in the interests of being prepared for this podcast. And now I feel a tad sheepish to do anything but echo your opinion and move on. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to condemn or defend Polanski. I will say he pled guilty to statutory rape. So there is that. There are, as you said, some shows we have planned where we will be discussing the morality of certain industry figures. But as Aragorn proclaims in Return of the King, it is not that day. I do want to acknowledge some odd coincidences between Thomas Hardy's novel and Polanski's first film following the aforementioned sexual assault. The lead character, Tess Derbyville, is raped by an older man. I noticed that in your summation of the film, it says that she is seduced, which is an interesting distinction to make because even on the poster, the tagline of the poster says, in her day, it was called seduction, not rape. And it is 100% rape. She is a timid young girl that does not know how to speak up for herself. It's fucking rape. So the lead character is raped by an older man. And because of the sexually repressive era of Victorian England, 19th century England, her life is ostensibly ruined and her future relationships are ruined. And in the end of the film, she murders her assailant, Alex Stoke D'Urberville, by stabbing him to death which is, again, a strange coincidence that in the book he was stabbed. And she does this as a means of proving to her husband and true love, Angel Claire. I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of the story. It's very long and very soap opera-esque. It's complicated. But she runs back to Angel to say, hey, I finally found the strength to stand up to this guy, and I am mature enough to be your wife again. Another odd bit of trivia is that the movie is dedicated to Polanski's late wife, Sharon Tate, who was murdered along with her unborn child and a handful of other folks 10 years prior to the release of Tess, the European release of Tess, which was 1979. At some point in Tate and Polanski's relationship, she bought him a copy of Thomas Hardy's Tess of the D'Urbervilles. If you go by Quentin Tarantino history, that day was February 9th, 1969, because if you remember, it appears in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when she pops into that bookstore in Westwood that's right across from that theater that she goes to see herself in. That's the book that she buys. She buys an original edition. But I guess apparently the book was purchased in Europe sometime during that same year. But Tate believed that Polanski could make like a definitive adaptation of Hardy's novel. It had been adapted and adapted back in like silent film era and in the 30s and then I think again in the 50s at some point. And she said that he could make the definitive adaptation and it was Polanski's intention and Tate's wish that she was going to play the lead role, even though she probably would have been a little too old at the time. So when this came out, it was considered Polanski's masterpiece. And I can see why. But in the ensuing four decades, that title's been passed on to Chinatown, The Pianist, or maybe even Rosemary's Baby, depending on your tastes. Tess is not one that comes up when people talk about Polanski's films. That's not to say Tess isn't well-made. I think the cinematography is probably my favorite thing about it. And the Oscar that it won was well-earned. Director of photography Jeffrey Unsworth, who also did 2001 Cabaret, and he shot Superman, the original uh, Richard Donner with Christopher Reeve, shot that right before he moved over to work on this film. He passed away in the middle of production on Tess after filming nearly all of the externals, which for my money are all the best shots in the movie. There's vast fields of earth and clay, these rolling pastoral landscapes, interminable dirt roads leading sometimes down to these peasant villages that are so beautifully crafted, um, or these massive plantations, and sometimes they go into these ethereal forests, shadowy and you lose the path. And sometimes they these roads evolve to cobblestone walkways and lead to towering gables of these magnificent manors. And it's all so well shot. 
During the opening sequence, the sun is gradually setting around this peaceful gathering of farmer's daughters that are dancing in the round. And Unsworth diffuses the rays of this slowly sinking sun around this melancholy recreation of youth and innocence. And it's so beautiful. And the emotion of that sequence and setting is really deepened when two hours later in the movie, Angel Claire returns to the clearing where he first saw Tess. But the sun is no longer soft and cottony. It's high in the sky. There's clouds. It's dim because... Well, life has crashed in on all of them. So the cinematography is wonderful. It actually made me think of Barry Lyndon, which is, for my money, one of Kubrick's best movies. I'd rather watch Barry Lyndon than The Shining, personally. But I would be probably called a contrarian for my trouble. Chris Kinski is really good. Um, you know, she's a 17-year-old kid playing a 16-year-old kid, a character that was written by a 50-year-old man. It's a tough go. Not to, not to mention playing Tess required Kinski to touch such a range of emotions timidity, fear, disgust, despair, shame, anger, rage, love, passion, and all the while maintaining this vulnerability. And she does it. I mean, she 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 does it. Does does she deserve an Oscar for it? No, I don't think so. But for a 17-year-old to put forth that kind of performance, it's it's pretty respectable. So then there's Lee Lawson. And I was like, I swear to God, I know this guy from somewhere, but apparently I don't. Um, he just kind of has like a, a familiar looking face. He's the one that plays Alex Stoke Durbeville, who I don't want to get too deeply into the movie, um, but he is that rich family member that they send her to. And he's not even really a member of the Durbels. They, uh, his family bought the title. I'm getting into it, and I said I wasn't going to get into it. So Lee Lawson plays Alex Stoke Durbeville and is just so monstrously good at being hateable. His performance conveys this arrogance and manipulativeness that are the outer layers of this guy, Stoke. But Lawson's also able to depict the rottenmost innards of this guy's vile personage, just summoning this poisonous contempt and ridicule with precision that he has for Tess couple lines that he hits her with are just so biting and it's all because of that that god i'm so happy that she killed him in the end even if it meant that she then was hung for her trouble polanski chooses not to show it he shows it in kind of a really creepy way the way he kind of reveals that she's she's done the deed but it would have been a pleasure to see him die on film he was that good i won't ever watch Tess again but i'm glad i saw it at least once it was heartbreaking it was beautiful but it wasn't always engaging and it was occasionally a bit too melodramatic for me and that might have just been the era. And that's coming from somebody that loves tragic romances. I mean, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, The English Patient. Love him. Is it a Best Picture winner? No, no. Would you put it like above like The Shining? No. I can't think of another movie we've talked about thus far that I would put Tess above. The two other ones that we could talk about in the top five is The Elephant Man and Coal Miner's Daughter. Okay, so Coal Miner's Daughter, which, you know, I guess I just don't know country music enough. I didn't realize that Loretta Lynn was actually a real person <laughs> before I got into this movie and then got into the research of it. But it's all about the country singer Loretta Lynn and her life story. It's a biopic. 
and she was raised in rural, rural, I I struggle with this word so much, rural, like we couldn't like think of a better spelling or pronunciation for this part of the country. Raised in rural Kentucky poverty and married at the age of 13, Loretta Lynn begins writing and singing her own country songs in her early 20s. With the tireless help of her husband, Oliver, nicknamed Mooney Lynn, which is a young Tommy Lee Jones. If you can picture Tommy Lee Jones with less wrinkles and blonde hair, that's Tommy Lee Jones in this movie. It was hard to watch Tommy Lee Jones and and just see it's kind of like now with the CGI of like the Irishman you're like is that really did he was he young at one point in his life but he was obviously Loretta rises from local honky tonks and small time record deals to national tours and hit singles befriending her idol Patsy Cline which is played by Beverly D'Angelo who I know her from the National Lampoon movies and uh, Loretta Lynn becomes a country music icon despite the toll stardom takes on her family and her marriage. By now, you know, this was 1980, but by now we have seen this story. We've seen it with Walk the Line and we've seen it with Ray. And this movie is fantastic for one reason, and I kind of brought it up earlier in the show, the linear quality to it. It doesn't, like, Ray starts and it goes into the flashbacks and they kind of talk about, like, well, this is who he is now. This is how he came to be that. Coal Miner's Daughter starts from rural Kentucky and takes you all the way through the stardom. And so this movie caught me by surprise, I will say it. It's the old, it's like the old story of uh, if you believe and you work hard, you could go from poor Kentucky to the grand old Opry. The musical aspect, and I've always... I don't know how you feel about musicals, but I've always rather enjoy musicals. I think musicals need to have a resurgence. We're going to talk about it on a future episode, but I do like when movies leave me with a feeling of with a feeling of feeling good. Um, and I think musicals kind of tap into that for me. I enjoyed Chicago, Moulin Rouge, when Baz Luhrmann was coming out with that. There's three Indian films that I watched on Netflix this year. One is Bahubali, which was had surprisingly good music in it. Lagan, which is a three hour, I think almost four hour movie about the exciting game of cricket, but it was exciting. And there's just songs thrown in and Three Idiots was a very good film. And I I realized after watching these three movies that I really enjoy musicals. And so when we were doing research for this episode, never heard of Coal Miner's Daughter, knew nothing about Loretta Lynn. I put it on. I start getting a feeling of what it's going to be about. Super cute when Tommy Lee Jones buys her a guitar because he hears her singing to their children. And he's like, I just like to hear you sing. And so she plays the guitar and starts writing her own music and it, it blows up from there. And it's just one of those movies, you kind of know where it's going, but in the same instance, you can sit back and just let the music consume you. It came out in a year that there was a lot more movies to look at, but in the same instance, I was pleasantly down for the ride. Sissy Spacek won Best Actress for this, and it was well-deserved. She sang all the songs herself, which I think helps in the Oscar voting pool. Nicole Kidman did it for Moulin Rouge. Reese Witherspoon did it for Walk the Line. Lady Gaga for A Star is Born. And I think since audiences and the Academy love musicals, I just don't understand why more aren't made. Hmm. Musicals are hit or miss for me. So Elephant Man. That's next. Do you want to take this one? This movie tears my heart out of my chest. And whether or not it's allegorical for the plight of the European Jew, I don't know. All I know is it's it's just heartbreaking. And the use of Samuel Barber's Adagio for strings just... 
It just decimates me. I still remember the first time I saw this movie as a kid, the ending where he just chooses. He's like, you know what, man? A, I don't want to be alive anymore. And B, I want to sleep the way I want to sleep with my head down on the pillow. <sighs> yeah, that's just fuck me up, dude. That, that was That's one of those indelible images, you know, where the music just matched the emotion so, so well. And I think I saw this movie, the first time I saw it, I think I saw it within a month of having seen Silence of the Lambs. And it was so shock, it was so jarring. It was so jarring to see Anthony Hopkins after being so absolutely terrifying to become this very nurturing and compassionate, uh, loving character. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. So like The Elephant Man was nominated for eight awards, best picture, best director for David Lynch, best actor for John Hurt, who played John Merrick, The Elephant Man. It was nominated for art direction slash set direction, costume design, best film editing, original score, and adapted screenplay. Do you know what award it was not nominated for that caused such an uproar and then they created a category from it? I'll take a guess. Was it makeup? It was makeup. Film is cited for being the reason best makeup category exists. And then, so the next year, it was a category, and that went to an American werewolf in London. Just if our audience, listening audience, does not know, the the story of The Elephant Man is Dr. Frederick Treves discovers Joseph Merrick in a sideshow. He was born with a congenital disorder, and John Merrick uses his disfigurement to earn a living as the quote-unquote elephant man. So he's, you know, part of a quote-unquote freak show of a circus back in the day. The doctor brings Merrick into his home, discovering that his rough exterior hides a refined soul, and that Merrick can teach the stodgy British upper class a lesson about dignity. And then Merrick becomes the toast of London and charms a caring actress, who is played by Anne Bancroft, before his death, uh, as Lee Charles has said, uh, at the age of 27, when all he does is lay his head on a pillow, which they say in the film will slowly suffocate him. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. It's an interesting year of nominations because Best Picture had two films in it that were shot in black and white. And this one was David Lynch. But the one thing that I want you to talk about, because you did research on it, was the interesting name behind the scenes when it came to The Elephant Man, who didn't want his name anywhere on it because it would have given it a connotation that it wasn't going to have. Yeah, that was Mel Brooks. Mm-hmm. And to my knowledge, that's the only that's the only non-comedy that Mel Brooks is associated with. Correct me if I'm wrong. I can't um, think of another. Except maybe Dracula Dead and Loving It, because that wasn't funny at all. <laughs> Conversation about Elephant Man makes it necessary for us, at least briefly, to talk about David Lynch. What do you think of David Lynch as a filmmaker? Because I, I think you and I both have <laughs> nuanced opinions about uh, what he's offered us cinematically. It's not love versus hate, really. It's, it's thought provoking versus time wasting i would put it as there are films that he a lot of his films are nonsensical to me like they feel like you have to peel back the layers a lot to get to what he's driving at and some films i feel like you can do that and some films just completely i go i don't know if there is any sense to this Lost Highway, I have said, is probably my favorite David Lynch film. And even that one, I don't necessarily know what it's about. But I feel like if I really, if I spent a week with that film, I could probably figure, it's like the lyrics of that Eve Six song, Inside Out. I could probably figure it out, what they're talking about inside of it. I enjoy what it is on the surface, and I can rewatch it. That's probably my favorite, or favorite film that I keep getting back to. Elephant Man, to me, 
probably his best work. People want to say they celebrate this one the most, that I would completely agree with them. <laughs> it's funny too that Brooks tapped David Lynch specifically, because that's how David Lynch got this job, was because of Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks came to him specifically and said, you're the guy that's going to do this. And at this point, the only movie that Lynch had made was Eraserhead. Have you ever seen Eraserhead? I, yes, I have. One okay. and a half times, I would say. <laughs> I mean, Mel Brooks clearly sees something that that I don't see because that movie was terrifying. I wouldn't be like, that seems like the auteur that I need to tell the story about this misused, poorly treated man <laughs> who is full of dignity. But this is one of two movies by Lynch that you could call a straight film. And interestingly enough, the second one of those is called The Straight Story with Richard Farnsworth. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with, I think I think the way that you put it is thought-provoking versus time-wasting. I was trying to get into him. The missus and I watched Twin Peaks, which I had never seen. And then we watched Twin Peaks The Return. And unbeknownst to me, we kept watching it, but she was absolutely mentally checked out. I mean, she was still watching because she was waiting for answers, which is what that whole thing is. And if you mm -hmm. know Lynch, you know you're not going to get any like, this is this and that is that. Where would you put Elephant Man? I'd probably still put it at three. I really enjoyed Coal Miner's Daughter. I mean, that's the thing with the Academy. Sometimes the Academy nominates stuff that you just don't enjoy. You know, that's kind of like a slog to get through. And Coal Miner's Daughter, I did enjoy but still, if I was going to look at the history of films, like I always say, the, the Dolby Pillars, if the Elephant Man was riding high on it, I would respect it. Well, I agree with you. I think it's number three, which means that we have narrowed it down to the winner, Ordinary People, and the number one loser, Raging Bull. I told you recently that one of my favorite things to do now is to look at clips of the films on YouTube and then read the comment boards. Because the comment boards of clips of movies, they're more insightful than I would say. Remember the comment boards of INDB? That was just a hot mess of an area. I want you to know that you're hearing what you're saying right now, that the movie clip clips on YouTube have comment sections that are worth reading. Yes. It's okay. like the yeah. only comment sections on the internet that are worth a damn. Interesting. <laughs> and really like, so you watch like the YouTube clips of ordinary people and people are loving the film and saying how much it resonated with them and how worthy of a film it is. And you do it with Raging Bull and those people have, they're a little bit more vitriol because Raging Bull lost, but they also make several good points. And as I was going back and forth, reading the debates on the interwebs, I was thinking about how I would approach the climax of this episode. And I started getting nervous that I was not going to do this justice because as I was also doing this, I was watching Ordinary People and being like, this is a good film. Like, you can't really hate this film. Ordinary People... The plot is tormented by the guilt following the death of his older brother in a sailing accident. The alienated teacher, Conrad Jarrett, played it's one of the best acting performances I, I would put up there, like top 20 of all time, probably. Timothy Hutton, he attempts suicide. He returns home. This is where the movie begins, following an extended stay in a psychiatric hospital. And he tries to deal with his mental anguish, his survivor's guilt, reconnect with his mother, Beth, who is cold and angry 
and she is kind of putting on the airs of a suburban housewife. And he is also trying to connect with his emotionally wounded yet trying too hard father, Calvin, played by Donald Sutherland. And he does this all with the help of the psychiatrist, Dr. Berger, who's played by Judd Hirsch. I feel like this movie deserved to win. It's kind of like the same thing with Elephant Man. This movie probably deserves a Best Picture win, just not over the movie that we're going to declare the winner at the end of this episode. There's your argument. Think, think about it this way. If you were going to teach a film class, would you get? Would you show them and somebody was like, all we got are ordinary people in Raging Bull. Which one do you want to study with the kids? It's like, duh. I mean, I'll study both of them, but I'm going to study Raging Bull way more than I'm going to study ordinary people. I intensely love this movie. I saw this movie a long, 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 long time ago when I was in either seventh or eighth grade. I rented this one from the library just simply based on the fact that it was directed by Robert Redford and that it had that Academy Award-winning performance by Timothy Hutton in it. And I watched it in the basement by myself. I actually ended up reading the book as well. And I felt so absolutely with no reason whatsoever, I felt so connected to Timothy Hutton's character. And it, and it, not because I had anything in common with him, but I think it was just simply be, because of the strength of his performance. He just, it, it's impossible for you not to just side with this kid that is so lost and so vulnerable and so needy. I love to take any situation whatsoever and not necessarily play devil's advocate, but put devil's advocate in my head and put put the shoe on the other foot, as they say, and then try to argue on the other side. And so as I was reading all the Raging Bull fans and being like, I can't believe ordinary people won over this. How could the Academy be so stupid? Look, all right, I'm going to tell you why Ordinary People won. Ordinary People does a wonderful job of telling its story. It's not some overhanded melodrama, which it could totally could have been given the subject matter that it was delivering. The whole story could be the basis of a TV movie. And Robert Redford actually casted TV actors. Like you look at everything that's going on. This is Robert Redford's debut as a director. He's casting TV actors and he pulls it off. This is like a JV team with a rookie coach taking on varsity and winning. Ordinary People is it's a wonderful film. The only thing that like I can kind of dock it for is the editing is a little raw, but it still captures your attention and takes you along for a ride when the subject matter is not at all comfortable. And I think what made it win over Raging Bull this year is that it's a conversation piece. Everything about it is going to make you drive away and talk about it with whoever that you saw it with or whoever saw it at the theater last night. From the topics of the American middle class to teenage suicide, which was not, this is what, 40 years before 13 Reasons Why comes out. And even 13 Reasons Why was like, no, 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 we don't talk about suicide because it's kind of like a disease and it will make put thoughts in people's heads. No, this one broached the subject of teenage suicide, putting on airs, which merely Tyler Moore did, and uh, the familiar relationships. I think that is the reason why Ordinary People took home the award because it, it, it made you talk. Because it's about people you know. That's why it makes you talk. For all of its wonderfulness, I watch Raging Bull and there's really nobody in that movie that I relate to. There are aspects of some of the characters here and there that I relate to, but it's mostly that sort of feeling that I get when I watch Macbeth 
which is that mm. like, you know, don't, why are you doing this? Stop doing this. <laughs> that's, that's mostly the rea- the emotional reaction I have when I watch Raging Bull. But with ordinary people, you're watching these interactions where you're like, okay, I have either been in that situation or I know somebody that has been, whether or not they have a, f- a family member that's died. Tragically, we've all had family turmoil. So I think that's what makes it a talking point. And maybe it was also because it had Mary Tyler Moore as the biggest bitch in the world. I think one of the things that you're giving it a little too much credit for is the melodramatic aspect. You're saying that it wasn't melodramatic. I agree for the most part, for the most part, does strike people, some people as melodramatic. And I can definitely see how it does. I got sucked up into it though, a little bit. Yeah, I would say it toes the line. For me, it didn't step over it. So I think it's odd that Hutton wins. I mean, there's plenty of instances of this in Oscar history. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that Hutton wins Best Supporting Actor when Judd Hirsch is also nominated for Best Supporting Actor and Hutton's in three is in three times the scenes that Hirsch is in. I, th- I feel like this this novel by Judith Guest as well as The Outsiders by Essie Hinton are very good melodramatic looks at kids and families. The Outsiders is read so much in school. And I think you could supplant it with Guest's novel, Ordinary People, instead. And you're going to get the exact same. Kids love reading The Outsiders. I mean, it, I I hate that book. But kids, <laughs> so melodramatic and stupid. And kids love it. They love it. They eat it up. So I feel like you could hit them with Ordinary People, which is a little bit heavier, as maybe like a follow-up to The Outsiders if they liked it. How do you feel about the like overwhelming waspiness of this movie? It's just, it's so dripping, you know, and and a lot of people would come out and be like, has it aged poorly? Which I I hate that, that going back in time to be like, is this movie made in 1980 actually really, truly representing blah, 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 blah. But it is really waspy. You got the golf, you got these like, let's go to London for Christmas. You know, I'm trying to get these Michigan State tickets. Oh, 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 boy, oh, boy. Oh, I do love that. Oh, oh. I sure do oh, love you. <laughs> boy, oh, boy. Ah, oh, we should spend more time playing golf together. You know that? Maybe our next vacation strictly golf. Pinehurst, Myrtle Beach. Oh, Pinehurst, you know. I think Connie'd like Pinehurst sailing and we just got done talking about the relatability do you think that that affects the relatability for a wider audience because i feel like raging bull is probably more relatable in that sense to a wider audience than this movie is like i can absolutely see that and agree with it these stories are out there and i think the overwhelming waspiness is a character of itself in the movie i mean marilyn tyler moore is playing her role as a mother with everything put together because of the waspiness, because of, you know, the country club atmosphere, the dying repression. You know, I live and die by my repression. And when Donald Sutherland's like, hey, I got to talk about this. (laughs) And she's like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, she's absolutely, her mind is fucking blown that her husband wants to have a conversation about his feelings. It's My grandma was Marilee Tyler Moore from this movie. And I had to give her eulogy. And I cried during the eulogy on on the line of I wasn't the grandson that she wanted because I wasn't this 
way of this type of family. So I feel like nowadays, because the middle class shrunk, because there's the lower class grew, there's less of an audience for this film. But in the same instance, like these stories are real and they're still out there. And they're still, I mean, we all know the suburbs that they come from. The country clubs are still going on. <laughs> this culture is still out there. And People like Mary Lee Tyler Moore, I know you you wrote her as a mega bitch, toxic femininity. Yes. And they're out there. If they lose a son, they still have to. You ever hear the song by Miranda Lambert? It's a very funny music video because it's your mother's broken heart. Word got around to the butterflies and the Baptist. My mama's phone started ringing off the hook. I can hear her now saying she ain't gonna have it. Don't matter how you feel, it only matters how you look. And it's about a girl who's going crazy and her mother is saying, this is not how you act like a lady when you get your heart broken. And so mm. I kind of feel for Mary Tyler Moore in this movie because she has to grieve on the inside because she has to be so put together on the outside. And she is going nuts yeah, internally. Yeah. And she is taking out on everybody. This performance by Mary Tyler Moore, I think, is fantastic. She's taking out on everybody, but she's also, I mean, she's really selfish. Every move she makes is to protect herself rather than to reach out to her son. And I mean, the first time you see it is where she she knows Conrad is in his room. She walks up to his room, looks at his closed door, knows he's in there and walks right past and continues walking. <laughs> Every choice she makes, that give her the goddamn camera scene. Yeah, I want to take a picture of Connie and his mother. No, I'll tell you what, let's get the three men in there and I'll take a picture of you. Connie, move in a little closer to your mother, okay? Prize winner. Yeah, that's great. Portrait. That is great. Do it. Page one, Lake Forester. Isn't it, Mother? Yes, it's yeah, I love it. Yeah. Make sure it doesn't come. Calvin. Hold it. Connie, smile. Calvin. Just a second, smile. Calvin, give me the camera. No, I didn't get it yet, Beth. Come on, give me the camera. Dad, give me the camera. I want a really good picture of the two of you, okay? No, but I really want to get a shot of the three of you men. Give me the camera, Calvin, Not please. until I get a picture of the two of you. Cal. Hang on a sec. Give me the goddamn camera! She's protecting herself there. She doesn't want to be near her child because her child reminds her too much of Buck. That was another thing I wanted to know. She was up for best supporting. And after my wife watched this movie with me, that was the one thing she agreed with me on. She was like, boy, was she good at being awful in this movie. And, you know, I mean, Mary Tyler Moore between the Dick Van Dyke show and the Mary Tyler Moore show was so beloved. Mm -hmm. and and then she made this movie. It's almost like when Sergio Leone cast Henry Fonda as the bad guy in Once Upon a Time in the West. So you got this sweet man who's been in nothing but, played nothing but wonderful, heroic, and noble roles. And now he's just this absolute evil bastard. It's kind of the same thing. Casting against type is, I mean, it clearly works. Here it worked. I, I think what you're saying, there is this exposure of this stratification of, of waspy culture, of just white culture, of my mother's mother and their mothers and their mothers before. And there is this sense of push it down, push it down. Don't think about it. Don't talk about mm -hmm. it. Put a Band-Aid on it. Put another Band-Aid on it. Put a Band-Aid over that Band-Aid. Clearly leads to, you could draw parallels from that to the fact that Conrad feels as though his only out or his only way to get over this is to kill himself. It's weird that my mind goes here, but there was a there was a good Tupac Shakur interview in the recording booth. And he was like, America's culture is gimme, 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 push, push, push. 
This world is such a, um, and when I say this world, I mean it. I don't mean in the ideal sense. I mean in uh, every day, every little thing you do. It's such a, gimme, gimme, gimme. Everybody back off. You know, everybody's like, you taught that from school, everywhere. Big business. You want to be successful? You want to be like Trump? Gimme, gimme, gimme. Push, 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 push. Step, step, step. Crush, crush, crush. Mary Tyler Moore and her husband, Donald Sutherland, built this life, right, of getting into the country clubs and having all this money and being so rich, all that they have is money, that when everything starts shattering, she starts pushing everybody away to try and protect her life. Judd Hirsch. Boy, is he good in this movie. The chemistry that he and Hutton have is so great. And even though that that mentor-mentee relationship, you know, the guy that or the girl that offers the younger troubled person a little bit of help, the only one I can think of off the top of my head is uh, Robin Williams and Matt Damon. But even though that that's kind of really overdone at this point, I would probably put this one as my favorite. Every scene with them together, particularly the last one, when he shows up and he and he, they're in the hallway and he's he's like, what happened? And he's unlocking the door and, and Conrad's just like babbling and babbling. He's like, wait, just wait, let's get inside. Let's get inside. You think they would assume there'd be an emergency now and then? No, don't take it off. Just sit down. <laughs> Something happened. What? It's it's what? <laughs> I need something. What do you need? Tell me. It just keeps coming. I can't. I can't make it stop. Don't try. Come on. I got. I can't. I got to get off the hook. For, I got to get off the hook. For what? For what I did. What did you do? <laughs> what I did to him. What did you do? It's something. It's something. Don't you see? It's got to be somebody's fault, or there ain't no goddamn point. <laughs> point. What point? It oh, happened. No. No. It ain't it. No. I don't mean that. It's. 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 It's a fuck. Fuck. Fucking. I didn't mean it. Bucky, I didn't mean it. Bucky! I know that. It wasn't your fault. But it was. You said, get the cell down. And I couldn't. I couldn't. It jammed. And then the halyard, the halyard jammed, and I got it. And then you're sitting, you're screwing around until it's too late to do anything. And I'm supposed to take care of it. I'm supposed to take care of it. And that wasn't fair, was it? No! And then you say, hang on, hang on. And then you let go. Why'd you let go? Because I got tired. Yeah? Well, screw you, you jerk! That kind of, like, control, like, I'm going to control the situation for us. We're going to get into this space, and then we'll get into it. And then they sit down. That's the best editing in the movie. I know you said that the editing is really rough, but that's the best editing in the movie where they have that conversation, and you get the flashbacks with no sound. The sound editing remains, you're still hearing the sound of the room, um, then breathing and talking, but you're seeing the images of Conrad and Buck almost dying and then Buck obviously dying and letting go. That, God damn it, that scene is so good. Such a good sequence. I mean, there's so many funny ones too. One thing I don't like about the movie is the character that Elizabeth McGovern plays, Janine Pratt. Do you have a problem with this notion that Timothy Hutton's character is sort of saved by this healing power of the opposite sex, this like allure of love, this amorous fixation. Does that bother you at all? I've dealt in my life with the anxiety and the and the dark, depressive days for eight years. Do you believe that Timothy Hutton at the end of this film is is healed? I do. You do? I do. He, I kind of like went on with it like he's, he's still going to have some dark days, but he found something to live for. Yeah. Well, that to me, that's healing. 
scared. Feelings are scary. And sometimes they're painful. And if you can't feel pain, then you're not going to feel anything else either. You know what I'm saying? You're here and you're alive. And don't tell me you don't feel that. It doesn't feel good. It is good. Believe me. Going back to your best supporting for Hudden instead of best actor, the argument that I can make for that is the fact that it wasn't totally his story. You didn't just follow him. So they might have said it was kind of an ensemble piece. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, 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 as much as I love ordinary people, I, I still think from an academic standpoint, Raging Bull is a better movie. Raging Bull was a movie that my dad showed me when when my brother and I were were younger. There's so many roles that De Niro plays of these guys that are imperfect. And we come to care for them and then they do something that makes us want to lash out at them, but we can't because we've come to care for them. Even though we see their faults and we judge them based on these faults, we see ourselves in them because we know that we are all fallible and we are all capable of making these same mistakes given the right circumstances. So I bought the movie when it came out on DVD on like special edition. I was in college and I took it home and I watched it with my dad and my brother it's tough to get through because it makes you feel uncertain about yourself. Mm. Um, that's the best thing about this movie. And that's saying a lot because there's a lot of really great things about this movie. Raging Bull, I think, is one of the greatest films ever made. Even if you look behind the scenes, it was a film that almost didn't get made. Martin Scorsese was dealing with a horrible drug addiction, a cocaine habit that was putting him in the hospital for overdosing. And it was Robert De Niro who read the story about Jake LaMotta and brought it to him in the hospital and said, like, I think we should dive into this project. Martin Scorsese didn't believe he was ever going to direct another film after this. And so he poured his heart and soul onto the screen with this film. He was involved in it from beginning to end, from the final edit, which was done by... Thelma Schoonmaker. Yes, who has been his editor before then and from then on. And I don't think she gets enough love as far as the industry goes. Great podcast if you ever listen to Alec Baldwin's Here's the Thing. Years ago, but if you go through the archives, you can find an interview that he does with Thelma Schoonmaker, which is fantastic. It's phenomenal to me that she is not... I understand that editing, cinematography, costumes, makeup, I understand that it's not the sexiest of the awards. You know, they think of like the big six awards, like the four acting categories, the directing category, and the best picture for the Academy Awards. But what everybody in the industry knows is the film is written twice. You have the script at the beginning and you have the editing room at the end. And there is no way a film is great without a great editor behind it. So all these films that we are talking about, when it comes down to it, you have to give the editor love, the editor and the director. And so Thelma Schoonmaker, in 2012, Raging Bull was voted by the Motion Picture Editors Guild as the best edited film in history. That's every editor in the guild saying this is the best edited film in history, and it is a woman. And I just don't think that is celebrated enough. 
I, and I it think is wonderfully no- like if you think about like I'm sorry to cut you off, but I wanted to say this because of the ordinary people. And I said the editing was rough. Even if the editing is rough, people have to realize that this editing is not this computer generated editing that we have today. That you just go click click and everything is pieced together. These people are sitting in bays and taking eight millimeter, sixteen millimeter, seventy millimeter film, and they are cutting it and they are using film specific tape and glue to put everything together and then viewing it, you know, in one full reel, like loading the projector, looking at it saying, "Eh, I don't really like it like that. Going back, cutting it some more. Like this is true blue editing. Every cut in this film is like hand cut. This is like a handmade film and it is edited so fucking well. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what she would say. You own side by side because I bought it for you because I think it's one of the coolest documentaries made about movies ever. And I love watching it. I wish that she had been interviewed on there because I wonder if her opinion would have been sort of along the same lines as as Scorsese. But I think that she would probably say to you because she is, from what I can gather, very logical and pragmatic. She'd be like, well, yeah, of course. Why would we keep doing it that way? That's the way we did it then. Why wouldn't we use an Avid now or use a computer now? Why wouldn't we do that? It just makes more sense. But God, yeah, isn't that so cool? I love the fact that you use the word handmade too. There's just, there's such an aura, there's such an aura about that to know that her fingers were on that first print. Yeah, man. I mean, it's so time consuming too. Can you even imagine how time consuming? Yeah, dude, she's great. I'm I'm with you 100%. There's this term, and this is the next thing I want to talk about. It's toxic masculinity. This is a term that gets thrown around quite a bit. For my memory, this is the earliest example that I can remember seeing where the lead male character was not somebody that I was like, oh, I want to be like him. Um, Mm. This was not Han Solo. This was not Indiana Jones. This was an awful, violent, jealous, paranoid, selfish piece of shit. And, you know, this this term toxic masculinity is, I'm sure I'm guilty of it. So what do you think? Is this the, I mean, this is the earliest example that I remember. Do you, is this the earliest example that you can think of, of this toxic masculinity? I mean, I think of Brando had some like streetcar named Desire, Brando and that Michael from the Godfather, especially part two, when he finds out about the abortion. But in the same instance, I feel like when you're viewing them, especially streetcar named Desire, I don't think people wanted to be Brando in that film and in the play. Like, I feel like you kind of knew that he was being an overbearing abuse of asshole. That's an interesting point, though, that you bring up. You just made me think of an example of toxic masculinity that I hadn't thought of, which is a movie called HUD with Paul Newman. The lead female who is a supporting character, she won Best Supporting Actress for that movie. HUD rapes her in that movie. He's a prick to his dad. He is a poor, he he tries to be a role model to his younger brother. And his younger brother looks up to him for all the wrong reasons because his younger brother's young and dumb. And he ends up raping this woman, Patricia Neal. When that movie came out, Newman was really upset because people started dressing like HUD. There was this sort of cultural response, at least stateside, of making a hero of him. And Newman was like, that's not ever, ever what we intended, ever. So I think that there can be a disconnect 
when you present toxic masculinity, there can be a disconnect between the audience that receives it, whether they say, this is clearly the, the director or writer, whoever is saying that this is the, not the way to be. There's a lot of backlash for Scorsese, specifically when The Irishman came out that he's out of touch and that he continually portrays you know these awful male figures in these positive lights. But when I think back to Goodfellas, to Casino, to Taxi Driver, to any of Scorsese's movies that have been controversial, have featured these controversial male figures. I've never felt as though he's said, hey, look at this guy, be this guy. He's never tried to portray them in a positive light. He's gone out of his way to either, like in the case of Wolf of Wall Street, portray him, all the men in that movie, as absolute animals or racists, as in the case of Taxi Driver. And even in Goodfellas, which feels cool when you watch it, it's about the theme in the end. It's about the ending of that movie where it's like, yeah, but none of this added up. None of this behavior added up. And that's Raging Bull. None of the way that he behaved added up. He alienated everyone from himself, his pride, his paranoia, his violence, his jealousy. He made it so that it was impossible for him to do anything other than shitty stand-up comedy right before some chick with propellers on her tits comes up on stage. What do you think? Do you agree with me? Do you disagree? Do you think that there's a responsibility that he has to be clearer about his message? To me, it's kind of like when the Beatles came out, everybody loved the Beatles. Then the Rolling Stones were getting popular and they're like, well, they're like, they're like the dark Beatles. And to me, Raging Bull is the dark Rocky. It's the Rolling Stones of Rocky. It's, it's not the guy that you're going to follow and try to emulate. And if you do, you're already a piece of shit before you sat down in that movie theater. Do people try to emulate Jake LaMotta? I don't even think people do it like with Henry Hill. They might, you know, at the end be like, oh, fuck that guy. He was a rat. I'm not saying that people are trying to emulate Jake LaMotta, but I, I can tell you watching it with my father, I remember the scene, my father's favorite scene following the one where he realizes what he's done to himself and punches the wall. Mm-hmm. My father's favorite scene is where he fights Sugar Ray and he's supposed to take a dive and doesn't. He lets Sugar Ray win, but it's by decision. And then he, he, he does the, Ray, hey Ray, I never went down, Ray. Hey, Ray. Never went down, Ray. He never got me down, Ray. You hear me? Never got me down. Yeah, see, look. And in the 13th round, the hard luck round. Never got me down, Ray. That was, my dad loved that part. This like strange machismo pride that I've never understood. I've just never understood it. I think I definitely have it within me, but I hate it. This film, it could have been the last film for everybody. That's how much like artisan and craft it feels like went into it. Even down to Joe Pesci, who was kind of, I mean, he was definitely unknown before this. They kind of found him. I read about it. He was working on stage at the time, but probably having a day job at the same time. They got him in here and he acts his balls off in this movie. You have the question here of Robert De Niro versus Pesci, who was better? Yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah. That's almost an impossible argument to have. My favorite sequence in the entire movie is when Pesci's in the bar and he's talking about the guy. I can't remember the the boxer's name, but he's the boxer that Lamada's wife says, "Oh, you know, he's a good-looking guy." You know, I saw a fight with Gennaro. I couldn't believe it. Destroyed this guy. It was absolutely incredible. He knocked his nose from one side of his face to the other. You gotta be the fucking thing was hanging off. Oh my. 
De Niro's not in it. Everything that she does in that scene, that don't make me get nuts in this place. <laughs> and then when he beats the fucking shit out of the guys out front, hits him with the garbage can, I'll suck your fucking eyes out! I'll suck the fucking eyes out, slamming the dude's head in the door, and then the opera kicks back in. Fucking cut. Watch out! Get out! Oh, oh, stop it! Suck your fucking eyes out! As just this giant mob of people close in on them. Or the only sequence I would say would be better is the opening sequence with the titles and the, the flash bulbs in the background. You know how Michael Chapman did that? He literally was running from spot to spot and changing the flash bulbs and then taking a picture. And then he would run, as he was running, he would change the flash bulb, put a new one in, and then go to another spot within the frame and take another picture. Brian De Palma seeing that sequence in the theater. He was in the midst of editing together. I can't remember if it was Carrie. Maybe he was working on Scarface at the time. In any event, Brian De Palma has this anecdote where he was super proud of himself about his next movie. And he went to see Raging Bull in the theater and was completely deflated within the first 60 seconds of Raging Bull. His, his quote is, no matter how good you think you are, there's always fucking Scorsese. Yeah, I mean, in the writing, one of the hateful articles I read of Raging Bull versus Ordinary People. A lot of the people don't like the film because of the, the overuse of potty mouths and cursing and swearing. And really, that to me is a ridiculous argument concerning the fact that you want that slice of life. Like, writing is supposed to be a mirror on society. And 
if you have Jake LaMotta sitting there not cursing, it just it doesn't it doesn't make sense. But no. she took the dialogue and she rewrote the scene where Robert De Niro is trying to fix the TV. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, he's eating a sandwich and Joe Pesci's sitting there like, why don't you eat yourself to fucking death? I got to accept your answer, you know. But I'm telling you now, if I hear anything, I swear on our mother, I'm going to kill somebody. I'm going to kill somebody, Joey. Well, go ahead and kill everybody. You're a tough guy. Go kill people. Kill Vicky. Kill Salvi, kill Tommy Como, kill me while you're out. What do I care? You're killing yourself the way you eat. You're a fat fuck. Look at you. What do you mean? I don't understand. What do you mean kill you? Me. Kill me. Start here. Kill me first. Do me a fucking favor. Because you're driving me crazy. You're a killer. You're a big shot. Just kill. You're a killer. Excuse me. What do you mean by you, though? So? What does that mean? Yeah, mean nothing. Even, even you don't even know what you meant by you. I mean nothing. Joey, that meant something. You mentioned Tommy, you mentioned Salvi, you mentioned you. You included you with them. You could have said anybody, but you said you and them. You really let this girl ruin your life. Look at you. She really did some job on you. You know how fucking nuts you are? Look what she did to you. You fucked my wife. What? You fucked my wife. How could you ask me a question like that? How could you ask me? I'm your brother. You ask me that? Where do you get your balls big enough to ask me that? Just tell me. I'm not answering you. I'm not gonna answer that. It's stupid. You're very smart, Joe. You give me all these answers, but you ain't give me the right answer. I'm asking you again. Did you or did you not? I'm not gonna answer. It's a sick question. You're a sick fuck, and I'm not that sick that I'm gonna answer it. I'm not telling you anything. I'm gonna leave. So the north close, tell her I went home. I'm not staying in this nut house with you. You're a sick bass. I feel sorry for you. I really do. You know what you should do? Try a little more fucking, a little less eating. You won't have troubles upstairs in your bedroom, and you won't pick it out on me and everybody else. You understand, you fucking wacko? You're cracking up. Fucking screwball, you. And they're going like back and forth, and she writes out the whole scene. And I know what scene she's talking about, but I have to read the entire scene. And I'm laughing as I'm doing it because I can hear them going back and forth. And it's funny to me to watch this after you watch their careers take off after this. And to think that there was a time in cinema before De Niro and Pesci shared the screen together. It's just it's mind blowing now because these two in this first movie of them together are almost like brothers. The way they play off each other, you can't manufacture this kind of chemistry. It's just amazing that they found each other. Scorsese has a great eye for talent. He he picked up De Niro because De Palma picked up De Niro. And I never knew that 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 fact, you know, Scorsese considers this film as having saved his life and that he didn't think he was going to make another movie. That's pretty poignant and makes the film even better. What do you think about the choice to shoot it in black and white? Because I fucking love it. It's a daring pick considering the fact that it is a bloody film. A lot of directors are very particular about what color the blood is because blood is so poignant as far as a device on screen. The fact that they went, no, we're going to do black and white. It's almost kind of like like an Alfred Hitchcockian choice. You know, how they how he did the, the shower stabbing scene in Psycho, where you don't see the stabbing at all. You just see the reaction and then you see the black and white blood going down the drain. To see like the, the blood on the ropes in this, to get like punching glove view of De Niro's face as he's getting pummeled and his face is sweaty and it's breaking open. You know, like to see it in black and white, you're almost filling in the pieces yourself in your own mind's eye and it's making everything so much clearer. The fact that you have, you never see red blood in the film, but you feel like you do, it's, it's phenomenal to me. 
Goodfellas was a filmmaker. I mean, Scorsese was established. He was a filmmaker by the time he made Goodfellas. Raging Bull is sort of in the middle there. I mean, he made Taxi Driver. He made Mean Streets. Raging Bull is sort of his pivot point. And it has a lot of the sensibilities of his er earlier films, but you can see that he's moving into other things. I mean, the man is one of the most prolific filmmakers of all time. I mean, it's going to be an absolute tragedy the day that he passes. I mean, every year the man makes a movie, whether it's a rock and roll documentary or a feature film. The only person that I could say comes close to his knowledge of cinema is Tarantino. And I would put both of them near the top of the greatest American filmmakers ever, but Scorsese is better. My favorite is Tarantino because I'm a little bit more of a uh, Joseph Sixpack, uh, Charlie Lunchbucket kind of guy. And Scorsese, sometimes Scorsese makes me feel dumb. And Tarantino never makes me feel dumb. Scorsese makes me feel dumb. And that's why I keep going back and back and back to his movies and movies that of his that I hated the first time and I watch a second or third time and I'm like, God damn it, was I wrong about this movie? You know, Gangs in New York, Shutter Island are the two examples that pop to mind immediately. Such great movies that I did not like the first time I saw them. He's going to go down as the greatest American filmmaker ever. There's no, there's no question. And I would say Raging Bull is the best one he ever made. If you have the greatest director of all time and Raging Bull is the best movie ever made, how does it not win the Oscar that year? So to wrap this up, unfortunately, to Robert Redford and everyone else involved in Ordinary People, but most of all, Ronald L. Schwery, the Oscar does not go to Ordinary People, but in fact goes to Erwin Winkler and Robert Chardoff for Raging Bull. The Bronx Bull, the Raging Bull. Let's hear for the great Jake LaMotta, ladies and gentlemen. I'm the best. I can take him more than anybody. You're dead, you're married. Leave the young girls for me. There's no way I'm going down. I don't go down for nobody. Listen with him. Why does he have to make it so hard on himself? If you beat Sugar Ray, you'll get a shot at the title. You feel that way? There's no one else around who wants to fight me. They're all afraid. There's a lot of bad things, Joey. Maybe it's coming back to me. Hey guys, thank you for listening to this episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. All the film snippets you heard are from great films, which we urge you to check out. And while you're waiting on the next episode, please, please check us out on Instagram at Take on the Academy. Or if you're old like us and you're still on Facebook, we made a little group on there. Same name, Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. Give us a follow, give us a subscribe, give us a like, give us a back rub, whatever it is. During that two-week interim, you'll see that our social media coordinator will share some supplementary pics and videos that may or may not enhance your experience of each episode and holy crap lee do you want to know what i just realized what's that we are halfway through our first season already oh and god <laughs> so we'll be back in two weeks with our fifth episode which is actually our second quickies episode of a three-part series of quickies with people that uh have acted inappropriately in the industry and currently hold gold statuettes on their mantelpieces and this one like harvey weinstein is a white male making us look good as usual that's right guys it's verbal kent lester burnham it's the guy with the burnt face kevin bad touch 
Spacey. We do we welcome are... back our very special guest, Emily, for the next episode. And this episode, like last, there certainly is no shortage of tension between Emily and I. She and I have always found ourselves butting heads. In fact, the older we've gotten, I think it happens more. So come on back, October 26th, and join the discussion. And until then, friends, stream on. A lot of people out there. Yeah, it's crowded. Go get him, champ.